2: Wow, so much is going on in the world of Lord of the Rings. If you haven't seen it by now, Amazon Studios released over 20 character posters for the new series, The Rings of Power. Lots of chatter on all the social media sites, guessing who the characters might be and what stories will unfold. Also, Amazon Studios has announced that the first trailer for the series will be available on Sunday, February 13. That's the Sunday right after this episode is released, so we'll check it out. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about the posters or the trailer. Just send me a note on Instagram or email me at lordoftheringspodcast at gmail.com, and I may select your message to be on a future episode. Okay, in today's episode of The Beginner's Guide to the Lord of the Rings, I'll discuss how were the moon and sun created? How did the Valar further separate themselves from Middle Earth? This episode is a summary of the chapter called Of the Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor, from a book called The Silmarillion, by J. R. R. Tolkien, and published by Ballantine Books in 1977. A link to purchase the book is in the show notes. Welcome to the Beginner's Guide to the Lord of the Rings podcast, we explore the foundational, epic stories from the deep past of Middle-earth. If you enjoy J.R.R. R. Tolkien's books, or maybe Peter Jackson's movies, or perhaps you're excited for Amazon Studios' new series, The Rings of Power, and you want to dive deeper into the rich world of Middle-earth, then listen and subscribe. Lago Vanyan, fellow wanderers. Today's episode date is February 10. On this day in Middle-earth, in the Third Age, year 3019, the Fellowship is still in Lothlorien, and in a few more days' time, Galadriel will give Frodo the chance to look into her mirror. Also, in a few more days, Gandalf's body will return to life after his fight with the Balrog. This is adapted from Today in Middle-earth History Calendar on the OneRing.net. Okay, let's do a quick map check. If you're a new listener, welcome. These map checks are in honor of the beautiful maps that accompany Tolkien's works, and I intend for them to provide context to the storyline and what I'll be talking about. That said, Tolkien's works are complicated, so if nothing in this map check makes sense, back up a few episodes, maybe even episode 1, or feel free to wander, because, like what Bilbo said about Aragorn, not all those who wander are lost. Okay, it is the first age of Middle-earth. Last episode, we discussed Thingol and Melian, and the birth of their daughter Luthien, as well as the establishment of their kingdom in Doriath. Doriath is a region of a wider land called Beleriand, which is a land that exists in the first age, but not the second and third ages, and where most stories in the Silmarillion take place. We've recently discussed how Morgoth, the Dark Lord, killed the two trees, and how those events led to many elves returning to Middle-earth, as well as what has been happening in Middle-earth. Now we return to the Valar as they sit in darkness after Morgoth has destroyed the trees. As we've touched on in previous episodes, the Valar sat in the dark around the area where the two trees had lived. Here they held counsel by conversing with each other via thoughts, and mourned for all the evil deeds of Morgoth, especially how he had corrupted Feanor. Upon hearing Feanor's final parting words, that the Noldor or elves who followed him would do great deeds worthy of song, the High King of the Valar, Manwë, says, quote, So shall it be. Dear bought, those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought. For the price could be no other. Thus, even as Iluvatar spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into the world, and evil yet be good to have been. Mandos, the keeper of the houses of the dead, responds, quote, And yet remain evil. To me shall Feanor come soon. It's that last phrase from Manwe that sticks out to me. Evil yet be good to have been. The syntax there is a little complicated, but to articulate it another way, I think what Manwe is saying here is that it's good for evil events to happen. So I would ask, why? Well, if you remember way back in Episode 1, The Beginning of Middle-Earth, I spoke about how the world was created by the music of the Ainur. And one of the Ainur, named Melkor, who later became Morgoth, wove into Iluvatar's theme a great music of his own. Iluvatar and Melkor have this battle of the bands, as it were, wherein Iluvatar gains the victory. Upon his victory, Iluvatar teaches that nothing can be created that doesn't have its source in him, and no one can alter Iluvatar's music, even Melkor. Quote, For he that attempted this shall prove but might instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. I don't want to get bogged down in the meta discussion of free will versus choice, but from these two examples, it appears that Tolkien was wrestling with the question of what is the purpose of evil. To some extent, at least in these works, Tolkien answered that part of the purpose of evil was to establish growth, or in response to evil's events, allow for new and more glorious creations that otherwise would not have been considered. This is a pattern that we've seen before, and will continue to see even in the story that we're covering today. Consider the light source for the earth. First, two lamps in the south and north, created and hollowed by the Valar, then destroyed by Melkor. Then the two trees, Telperion and Lorelin, created and hallowed by the Valar, then destroyed by Melkor. We'll see in a few minutes what the Valar attempt next, but each iteration is more beautiful and glorious than the last, and yet would not have existed if previous creations hadn't been challenged and destroyed. Growth and beauty as a reaction to evil. Now a variation of that theme that we've seen before, through sorrow and mourning, comes joy. Let's see what the Valar do next. After counseling and thought, the Valar start to execute on their plan. Two members of the Valar approach the lifeless stems of the trees, Yavanna and Niena. As a reminder, Yvanna is the creator and curator of all plant life, and Nienna is the mourner, continually weeping for the evils and hurts of the world. Exerting all their power, they were not able to heal the trees. In the end, Telperion the silver tree produces one last flower of silver, and Laurel in the golden tree bears one last golden fruit. After Manwe hollows these precious gifts, Yvanna gives them to Aule, the master craftsman of the Valar, who creates great vessels to preserve them. Then these vessels are given to Elbereth, who sets a course for them to traverse in the sky. I love the teamwork and collaboration that the Valar show here, each giving of their own talents and powers to create something more beautiful than what any of them could do on their own, and to create it even after great tragedy. Their motivation for doing all this was to provide a great light in the sky, so that Morgoth's deeds could be exposed and thus hindered, for the benefit of the elves in Middle-earth and the men who had yet to come. Not knowing where men would be and considering them weaker than the elves because of their mortality, they wished to not battle Morgoth openly. Quote, therefore, the Valar sent forth light. Let's take a look at the two lights that the Valar provided. Since Tilperion the silver tree was the elder of the two, let's examine the moon first. The silver leaf of Tilperion was set in a great vessel. A member of the Maiar begged to have the responsibility of caring for this last leaf of Tilperion. His name was Tilion, who had been in the service of Orome the great hunter. He loved silver. His vessel was ready first, and so rose into the sky similar to how Telperion was the elder of the two trees. In Middle-earth, when the moon first appeared in the sky to the west, the servants of Morgoth were amazed, and the elves were delighted. In fact, when the moon first rose, Fingolfin, who, if you remember, was leading the Noldor with Galadriel across the frozen wastes in the north on their journey back to Middle-earth, arrives in Middle-earth at the rising of the first moon, and they blow silver trumpets to announce their return. Let me make one other connection to a scene in The Two Towers that is a little more detailed in the book than in the movie. This scene is when Faramir of Gondor has captured Frodo and Sam while they're trying to get into Mordor. Gollum is followed behind, and Faramir is taking Frodo to overlook the pool of water where Gollum is searching for fish. As they come out, they can see the moon far into the west, and Faramir says, Moonset over Gondor. Fair Ithil, as he goes from Middle-earth, glances upon the white locks of Old Mandulian. It is worth the few shivers. Some interesting things to note here. First, Faramir refers to the moon as He in the masculine. This has its roots in the masculinity that was referred to for Telperion the Silver Tree, and also in Tilion, the masculine Major who navigates the moon through the heavens. Also, Faramir calls the moon Ithil. So, a little Gondor history here Gondor had two main fortresses that guarded their chief city, Osgiliath. On the mountains that surrounded Mordor was Minas Ithil, or the Tower of the Moon. This fortress was eventually overtaken by the king of the Nazgul and renamed Minas Morgul. Apparently, in the days of its glory, Minas Ithil had somehow captured the light of the moon in its marble walls and was fair and radiant before being overrun. Also, the fair land that Faramir loves and guards is called Ithilien, or the land of the moon, and likely supported Minas Ithil in the days of its glory. One last note on the name Ithil. In the scene before the gates of Moria, where Gandalf is trying to open the doors and Frodo, in the movie, figures out the password. The doors were inscribed with a beautiful silvery substance called Ithildin, which, according to Gandalf, quote, mirrors only starlight and moonlight. So where does the name Ithil come from? It's a variation of the name that was given to the silver leaf of Telperion that became the moon. That name was Isil. Okay, let's go back to the creation of the sun. For the golden fruit that Lorealyn the Golden Tree bore before she died, the Valar chose a maiden from the mire named Arion. She had tended the golden rains of Laurelin. She was mightier than Tilion, and could withstand, quote, the heats of Laurelin and was unhurt by them, being from the beginning a spirit of fire. When she takes to her task of tending the sun, she sheds the form that she had taken and reveals herself as a splendid and brilliant flame. The moon had journeyed through the sky seven times when the sun finally arose, quote, and the first dawn of the sun was like a great fire upon the towers of the Pelori. Then indeed was Morgoth dismayed. Let's draw another connection here. Remember the Minas Ithil was the Tower of the Moon, but its twin fortress in Gondor was Minas Anor, the Tower of the Sun. Anor, the name of the tower, is derived from the name the Valar gave to the last golden fruit of Lorelin, Anar. This tower, Minas Anor, eventually changed its name to one that you are likely familiar with, Minas Tirith, the Tower of the Guard. Yes, that white city built on the edge of the mountains with the dead white tree where Gandalf and Pippin met Denethor. That city was once named Minas Anor in honor of the sun and the golden fruit from Lorelin. Elbereth, the member of the Valar who has charge of the stars and heavens, purposed the moon and sun to follow a steady yet staggered course in the sky, so that Middle-earth would always have great light, and thus the deeds of Morgoth might be hindered. But Tilion, in charge of the moon, was ever drawn to the brilliance of the sun, and became unsteady in his timing, sometimes appearing in the sky with the sun, and even sometimes eclipsing its light. Morgoth, for his part, hates the moon and sun, no surprise there, and attempts to destroy them as he has the previous versions of light, the lamps and the trees. But Tilion is victorious against Morgoth's servants, and Morgoth didn't even dare to come to the sun, even if he had the power to do so. So instead he creates and sends forth great vapors and clouds to cover his fortress in Thangorodrim. A couple of last things to note on the moon and sun. Here's an interesting line that Tolkien wrote, quote, the sun was set as a sign for the awakening of men and the waning of the elves, but the moon cherishes their memory. So we see here that the days of the sun are a time when the power and bliss of the elves is diminishing, whereas men The second born have the time of their growing and golden days, pun intended, while the sun shines. The elves, as first lovers of the stars, also loved the gentle silver light from the moon. And while the moon and sun are both glorious in the splendor and light, neither of them, quote, can recall the light that was of old, that came from the trees before they were touched by the poison of Ungoliant. That light lives now in the Silmarils alone. So remember, of the fate of the two trees of Alinor, all the tales of these elder days are woven. And the light that the trees produced lives only in the Silmarils, which Feanor created and Morgoth stole. The Noldor, those elves who follow Feanor, have returned to Middle-earth, in large part to reclaim the Silmarils, and thus reclaim the light of the two trees of Valinor. One last event in this chapter before we end. Because of Morgoth's assault on the moon, and because the Valar did not know if or where men had awoken, the Valar did not want to wage an open warfare with Morgoth as they had previously done on behalf of the elves. So they opted instead for a strategy of defense and, quote, a sleepless watch. They raised the mountain fence around Valinor even higher and erected tall towers near near the elven cities. In the seas outside of Valinor, they raised a chain of islands that were extremely difficult to navigate due to the mist that perpetually surrounded them. The seas were filled with, quote, shadows and bewilderment. Which I find interesting that those same words are used to describe the girdle of Melian, which the Myar Melian wove around the land of Doriath. See episode 8 for a brief description. In this way, Manos's earlier prophecy came true, that Valinor would be shut to the Noldor. Indeed, though they sent many emissaries, none ever reached Valinor, except for one that we'll get to in another episode, but Tolkien describes as, quote, the mightiest mariner of song. Okay, let's recap. The two trees of Valinor provide a source of silver and golden light as their dying gift. The Valar fashioned vessels for these light sources and choose from the Maiar to pilot these vessels in the sky, far from Morgoth's reach. The moon from The silver leaf of Tilburion rose first. The sun, from the golden fruit of Lorelin, was the gift of the Valar to hinder the designs of Morgoth. Thank you for listening. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. For feedback on the show, please email me at Lord of the Rings Podcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at Beginner's LOTR Podcast. Until next week, remember, not all those who wander are lost.